Welcome to my vagina. This is Jesse Karen. And this is Rebecca Frank. And here we are again having our current historical, <laughs> hysterical, and infuriating conversation about our lives as vagina having organisms. All content made up on the spot, but probably research. Uh, just kidding, fools. It's definitely researched. Hey guys, guess what? Big surprise. Uh, not big surprise. It's kind of a big surprise. It's totally a big it's surprise. Big surprise. Cute. We've been asking for money on Glow.fm. We are trying to lasso you in even more by giving you extra tiny episodes mm-hmm. if you become a monthly subscriber. Yeah. So if you go to glow.fm slash welcome to my vagina and become a monthly subscriber, you'll get access to one extra episode every month. And this first episode, we're going to talk about nipples. Yeah. It's real exciting. You're going to need to know. About nipples, because you think you know, but you don't know. You don't know. You don't know about nipples. Like, I learned about one person uh, who has two nipples, a person that we all know about. Everyone has two nipples. I mean, two extra nipples. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, I clearly need to do more research. Wow. Wow, Rebecca. (laughs) (laughs) Two extra nipples, and you won't know who it is unless you listen to our episodes. You have to subscribe. We're not going to tell you. We're not going to tell you. Also, tell them, Rebecca. Tell them what we're going to do. So, on March 8th, which is International Women's Day, we are going to be doing a live event. We're going to be at Three's Brewing uh, in Gowanus here in New York City. Um, and we have an hour-long slot from 2.30 to 3.30. We're going to play some games. We're going to do some trivia. We're going to do a live recording. Yeah. So Put that all- shit in your calendar. Yeah, put it in your calendar. Come. We're going to be selling merchandise. We're going to be giving out stickers. We're going to dress we would- up in vagina costumes. We sure are. At least one of us will. At least one of us. For sure. Depending on whether someone wants to sew an extra costume. Yeah, it's, there's, a couple of, there's a couple of things in the air here, but it's going to be awesome. We'd really, really love to see you there. Uh, and there's going to be awesome other comedians as well, including my good friend Kendra Cunningham. Woohoo! So check it out. Yeah. And finally, before we get into our episode, here's some information you don't need to know. First of all, it was Jesse's birthday recently. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to you. Uh, and someone birthday. got these super... <laughs> fancy very treacherous nails they're very treacherous nails and i thought they were a good idea but now i look like edward scissorhand and i can't pick things up and i tried to put my diva cup in and i'm not sure if the blood was from my menstruation or <laughs> <laughs> micro abrasions <laughs> and meanwhile i have a pimple on my ass and so maybe after we're done recording i'll have jesse scratch it i'm gonna lance it off that's it i feel like that's friendship it is friendship yeah so listen to midwives best <laughs> best fiends <laughs> Midwives. It means one thing to lose our patients to other doctors, but to those charlatans, it makes me sick. Today we're going to talk about midwives. We're talking about midwives. We're talking about midwives because even today, there's still a long-standing culture war between doctors and midwives. Yeah. And it's rooted in race and class in America. Yeah. So as of now, 98.6% of births in the United States take place in the hospital. Mm-hmm. That's wild. Midwifery is an incredibly common practice in a lot of countries. In the UK, midwives deliver about half of all babies, like Kate Middleton's, apparently. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they were actually, it was actually common when the American colonies were first formed because midwives, people coming over from England, mm-hmm. brought their skills and they passed all this information on to the other colonists. Yeah. They, did, they delivered babies at home and stuff like that. But then we pillaged right. Africa for people. So. Europeans brought African slaves to the United States in the early 1600s. Along with them came African women who were trained and practiced as midwives and who continued to do so and train others to do so during their lives as slaves. If you look at midwifery during the time of enslavement, the midwife was actually the person who made certain that women were able to produce healthy babies. And after slavery ended, um, she was no longer valuable because she was not making certain that there was continued slavery. 
mm-hmm. labor, or that there was continued slave labor. But black midwives did so much more than just deliver babies. They were spiritual healers. They acted as family counselors, breastfeeding consultants, postpartum doulas, nutritionists, family planning counselors. They were advocates and provided resources and care for their people because women of color always do things 100 times harder than we do. <laughs> it's so true. Um, they were known as granny midwives. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, there was a documentary called All My Own Babies that was produced by the Georgia Department of Public Health, which covered the history of granny midwives and specifically followed this woman, Mary Frances Hill Coley, mm-hmm. who was known as Miss Mary. Um, she was a granny midwife who helped deliver over 3,000 babies in rural Georgia in the middle of the 20th century. It was archived by the Library of Congress, uh, but it was also used by UNESCO, by the World Health Organization, and by UNICEF as a teaching tool. Um, which was used to res- promote the respect of midwives by doctors and the medical establishment. Mm-hmm. However, because Georgia's gonna Georgia, the Department of Ge- Public Health in Georgia provided an accompanying pamphlet with the film that stated that the medical profession was not endorsing the use of midwives and said that they were a, quote, temporary and unfortunate necessity, end quote. Mm-hmm. In the South, most of these women were black women taking care of women, both black and poor white, um, because during the days of segregation, you could not access hospitals. Um, There was actually over 5,000 black midwives in the South until 1930, and it it dwindled down to about 10 by like the 70s. So when uh, birth started becoming medicalized in the early 1900s, as Jesse said, the hospitals were segregated, so they refused to care for black women. But also there weren't enough hospitals in rural rural areas, which in fact is still the case today. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of counties in rural areas, specifically in the South, that don't have access to an OB um, like a labor and delivery section. Mm-hmm. And so midwives are really important for women to be able to get the care that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, poor white women were sent to charity hospitals and were essentially, and black women, yeah. were essentially used as guinea pigs in order to teach obst- obstetricians how to deliver babies. Right. In the, and in the mid to late 1800s, the professionalization of medicine became such a major trend that male doctors began taking control, like as you're saying, of childbirth and took it completely away from female midwives. Mm-hmm. Um, because essentially to get women into the hospital, you have to get rid of the midwives who are taking care of them and everything that they know. And so they started demonizing it. Exactly. Um, so Money. Yeah, it's all. So it's actually it's really interesting because it really is like if you remember from our episode on body hair, a lot of times if you chase the money, you'll find out why things happen the way that they do. Yeah. These women were blamed for uh, maternal deaths, infant deaths. And if you think about Mary Coley, who attended 3,000 births, and there's another woman, because we should know these names, Margaret Charles Smith, who was famous for being one of the last practicing granny midwives. She caught a baby when she was five years old. There was never a woman who died under her watch. um, And she spent all of her days traveling so far that she would wade through water just to get to births. It's amazing. I mean, like... If we think about the maternal mortality rate in this country and specifically how different it is between white and black women mm-hmm. in places where there's not ac- where there isn't access to midwives, the mortality maternal mortality rates tend to be higher. Mm-hmm. So black mothers are three to four times more likely to die from causes related to pregnancy or childbirth. And there's evidence that empowering midwives might change outcomes for moms and babies. Um, specifically because we're looking at an entire industry that is hostile towards Black people mm-hmm. and black women specifically. So for 2011 to 2015, the national pregnancy related mortality ratios was 17.2 per 100,000 live births. Black women and American Indian and Alaskan uh, Native women had the highest pregnancy related mortality ratios at 42.8 and 32.5, which is 
like I said, three, about three times as high as white women at 13.0. So approximately 60% of pregnancy-related de- deaths from the state maternal mortality review committee were determined to be preventable. So I just actually read this article about this woman, Stephanie Snook, mm-hmm. who was an activist in the, um, was a Native American activist, and she was due with twins and wanted and was to be interviewed for an article about indigenous women's high rate of pregnancy-related deaths, but she died in pregnancy, died in childbirth. And one of the things that's really interesting, just related to uh, what you just said about the numbers specifically of Native women, is Mm -hmm. that in all of the details, a lot of times Alaskan Natives and Native Americans in the contiguous United States Mm -hmm. are misidentified. And so the information about the maternal mortality rates of that population is actually probably low. The reported numbers are low. Oh, absolutely. And so like when we look at it, we have these numbers that are really upsetting. And it's American Indian and Alaska Natives are more than twice as likely than white women to die from conditions Mm -hmm. caused by or exacerbated by pregnancy. But they're also underreported because yeah. they're misidentified. Absolutely. Um, so that's really horrible. Um, <laughs> anyway, we're going to take a trip in the Wayback Machine now. And now we're going to take a brief break for a message from our sponsors. Hey, everyone. Guess what? We are here again, sponsored by Ballsy. That's right. Welcome to Vagina is sponsored by <laughs> Ballsy. <laughs> and we are very freaking excited about it. Do you need ball wash? I think you might. Or maybe your boyfriend does. Or maybe your neighbor does. What's a great gift? Nut rub, baby. Or sack spray. Who doesn't need sack spray? I don't have balls, but I kind of want to get sack spray for myself. Or anybody that I know. Roommates? Roommates need sack spray. I'd be, I'd be on the couch with my roommates, and I'm like, boy, your sack needs some sack spray. That's what I'm thinking. So this is a great gift. We think you should head over to ballwash.com to find things to wash your balls with or to wash your boyfriend's balls with and use our promo code WELCOME20. So this is something that we can get for you that's special because we are so nuts about you that we want you to get the sack pack uh, the retail price is $45, but our, with our coupon code, it's 20% off. Here's your code, man. Welcome 20. That's right, babies. Welcome 20. Welcome to ballwash.com. All right, so here's what you get in the sack pack, okay? It's ball wash, which washes your nuts, your butt, and then it's also just body wash. It's all the things with activated charcoal. You also have sack spray that neutralizes the odor that, you know, all the stuff that gets in the sack, there's all the crevices and the stuff, and it's, you know. Um, and then, in addition to that, you, you know, after all these things, you're gonna get some nut rub, you know, you're gonna some solid cologne. You're just gonna rub that around your balls, just in a, in a circular motion. That's what I think you should do as a person who doesn't have balls. And the result is you have soft, shameless balls that smell like balls dipped in ambrosia. A little sandalwood in there, a little charcoal activation. Scrub them nuts. Scrub these nuts. <laughs> so take these nuts over to ballwash.com and get your coupon code for 20% off the retail price of $45. Type in welcome20. Ballsy, I am so grateful for you. I, I love this relationship that we have. It's like a it's like a morning tea baggins. And I, who doesn't love a morning tea baggins? Who doesn't? 
happened? What is that? A tea bag. Like nice smelling balls in your face in the morning. How does everybody else wake up? <laughs> Today, our episode is sponsored by the puzzle adventure game, Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. Oh, I know that game. Oh, really? I've been looking for a new way to engage my brain with a fun puzzle. Well, Jesse, this is the game for you. Because when you play Best Fiends, not only do you engage your brain with fun puzzles, you also get to collect tons of cute characters. Ooh. I'm on level 40 already, and I can't stop playing. Trust me, because I've played it. With over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. I ride the subway a lot, and there's no internet when you go through the tunnel. Don't worry, they have a plan for that. Because Best Fiends doesn't require the internet at all. This game is so popular, I bet some of our listeners play Best Fiends. If you do, send us a DM and let us know. We want to compare progress. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends, free, on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends! And now we're back. So there were some there were some events that that kind of set the stage for doctors to essentially m- misplace midwives, which occurred in the early 1900s, like ni- between 1910 and 1920. So around that time, there was a couple of reports that were released um, within about medical education. One in 1910, a second one in 1912 that reported that American obstetricians were poorly trained, um, and so the recommendation was to recommend hospitalization for all births and the eventual with the intention of abolishing midwifery. Mm-hmm. All together, and then as we said, poor women would go to charity hospitals where they would be essentially guinea pigs. Mm-hmm. And then 1915 introduces the evil doctor <sighs> Joseph Delee. Joseph motherfucking. Ooh, I said that's so villain. That's so villainous. You did a really good job. Thank you. Thank you didn't you. even practice. I didn't even practice, guys. That was just off the cuff right there. <laughs> so Joseph Delee of Chicago was the most influential OBGYN of his day. And just to give you an intro to what Rebecca's about to tell you, here are some of the things that he called midwives. Relics of barbarism and a drag upon the science and the art of obstetrics. Yeah, he was trash. Mm. So essentially, the big thing that he did was that he changed the way that we think about childbirth um, from being kind of like a natural course of life to becoming like a pathologic, which basically means that it's related to sort of physical or mental disease. So if we even kind of like follow that through to now, when we talk about childbirth and the time of maternity as being uh, akin to being needed to be covered by like disability, mm-hmm. it's that is part of calling it a pathologic. Right. So he basically said that if we were to think of childbirth as a destructive pathology like he did rather than a normal function, the midwife is not important anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so he changed the focus well, of healthcare. Right, exactly. He's men here. are here men to are save here. the day. The power of the powerful white man. That's right. Uh, <laughs> so basically, if we change the focus of healthcare during labor and delivery from responding to problems that come up um, to controlling everything and the use of interventions in order to control the course of labor, mm-hmm. like that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to completely alter that focus. And so that's, as according to this woman, Judith Rooks, She said, this change led to medical interventions being applied not just to the relatively small number of women who had a diagnosed problem, but instead to every woman in labor, which is where we are today, Mm -hmm. that this is why women go to the hospital instead of having birth at home. This is why people use OBs instead of midwives. This is why people are considered like 
irresponsible for using midwives and doulas only. Yeah. Because we're so we're so conditioned to see pregnancy and childbirth as a pathology mm-hmm. and to medicalize it and to have interventions for fucking everything yeah. that we can't think of it. Like the number of tests that are unnecessary by and large mm-hmm. is a direct result of this sort of change. And I also would like to blame Delie for the fact that pregnancy and childbirth is fucking expensive. <laughs> this is all kind of his fault. It made me also think about like how women give birth on their backs, which is not generally how they've done it throughout history. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to blame him, but it actually turns out that earlier records show that most women uh, adopted a sitting or squatting or standing position while in labor because that was the most, that was how, yeah. that's how it worked. <laughs> well, because gravity and butt muscles. Exactly. Um, and it was more comfortable for the woman, honestly. Right. But apparently it was because King Louis, the... Oh, God. The 14th. So many of them. Uh, I know. <laughs> I was like, which one is that? <laughs> Who ruled from 1643 to 1715 actually played a huge hand in popularizing the lying down position because oh God. he liked to watch women give birth. Wow. And the sitting stools or like the squatting didn't give him he was into the perfect the crowning. view. He was into the crowning. Him and then also this guy. France- and he was a king. <laughs> <laughs> it was also Francois Mauricio. I might be saying that wrong. A French obstetrician was also credited with popularizing the lying position because it was more convenient. But I mean, your point kind of stands because they're both men who popularized something that oh, my, made. Oh, my. That, yeah, that was yeah. an addition. To, oh, cool. uh, that was me being like, it's more convenient for them no matter what, even right. for the viewing purposes for Louis. And mm-hmm. because some French obstetrician was like, well, this is more convenient for me delivering the baby. <laughs> I know you're in labor and this hurts like hell, but <laughs> whatever. I mean, women's pain isn't real. That's not. It doesn't hurt at all. Um, Please. So, yeah. So moving forward, some states actually outlawed uh, home birth midwives while others created new regulations that made it harder to enter the profession. And by the 1950s, a vast majority of women gave birth in hospitals attended by doctors. Mm-hmm. Thanks a lot. Delee. Delee. I wanted to call him Philip, but it's not Philip. It's Joseph Delee. Joseph Delee. <laughs> so also, according to Rooks, midwives attended approximately half of all births in 1900, but less than 15% by 1935. Mm-hmm. By the early 1930s, most practicing midwives were black or poor white granny midwives working in the South. Where midwifery declined, the incidence of mother and infant deaths from childbearing or mm. birth injuries generally increased. Mm-hmm. A scholar who conducted an intensive study concluded that the 41% increase in infant mortality due to birth injuries between 1915 and 1929 was due to obstetrical interference yeah. in birth. Yeah, I mean, even if you look at now, in Sweden, Denmark, and France, midwives oversee 75% of births, but here in the U.S., they participate in 10% of births. In the countries that tend to rely on midwives more frequently, maternal mortality rates are a fraction of America's. The U.S. is the most dangerous industrialized country in which to give birth. That's yeah. insane. And and like, and it's risen where it's declined yeah. elsewhere. You know, you can say that like that correlation does not lead to causation necessarily, but when but the problem is that there's all of these unnecessary things that happened mm-hmm. and that people don't have access. Like here in New York City, we have a ton of hospitals. Yeah. Fucking expensive, but they're here. But there's a lot of areas where there aren't hospitals. And when there's, where there's been a barrier to entry for midwives to go into the industry and people can't get to a hospital, people have to travel over 100 miles. Yeah, to get anywhere. Like what if you go into labor? Right. You don't, ha- you don't have time for that shit. You don't have time and you don't have money. Yeah. Honestly, like even if you're talking about New York, you have technically you have accessibility but it's so fucking expensive and like half the time 
I, maybe this is a a theory that I've heard from other ner- like from other people in the industry, but they just make up prices at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, I read this article today where these people were quoted for this specific test that they were going to get, $265. And when they got the bill, it was over 2000 Yeah. But you can also bargain. I had no yeah. idea you could bargain with your price. Because it's crazy. Because the things that they use at the hospital, it's like a diaper. They could charge you $20 for one diaper. Yeah. And, like, you know, there are people that, like are afraid to ask for epidurals. Some some hospitals are now offering like maternity packages where mm-hmm. like you know what you're going to it's three let's say $3,000 for the labor and delivery. Just a lot. <laughs> Especially considering that like American women get kicked out of hospitals like day after birth mm-hmm. whereas women in Europe a lot of times stay for about a week yeah. that they can, you know, rest, get some help. Well, that's also the CDC was also talking about not just uh death during birth but also uh death postpartum mm-hmm. a lot um, of times i don't think that's reported as maternal mortality of course not that's part of the problem is it's mm-hmm. not considered but it is a big deal one to six days postpartum at 21.4 percent yeah that's a lot that's six days later yeah um so we had also mary breckenridge Mm-hmm. who um, founded the Frontier Nursing Service in rural Kentucky in 1925. Mm-hmm. She'd previously worked as a public health nurse for the Red Cross in France until uh, about the 1950s, nurse midwives only attended her home births, but some hospitals started developing a program with midwives to help offset the post-war baby boom. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the early 1960s, there were fewer than 70 nurse midwives in the entire country. Yeah. And by the 70s, middle-class white women wanted more of a voice in their maternity care, and that led to a rise in midwifery. Except this time, of course, most midwives were white women. Yeah, so currently there are about 15,000 midwives in the United States, but only 5% of them are women of color. Mm -hmm. Even though, historically speaking, the vast majority of of midwives were women of color in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, White women just love to co-opt shit. Yeah, there is, I think she's known as the queen of midwifery. Uh, Shafia Monroe. Mm-hmm. Um, her quote was one of the darkest moments in history was systemic, the systemic eradication of the African-American midwife from her community, resulting in a legacy of birth injustices. Yeah, because one of the other things to think about is, you know, when we when we think about midwives and doulas and and the important role that those people play in the birth, birthing process, one of the things that you need is to feel safety, to, to feel safe, to feel heard, to feel understood. To have a community yeah, that understands you. Exactly. I think there's a lot to be said for not to say that like we need to handle all of this stuff within, you know, racial groups because I don't believe that. But I think like if a black woman wants to have a black midwife, she should be able to have one. Oh, 100%. And if that makes her feel more comfortable, then that is what she should have. A Spanish-speaking woman should have access to a Spanish-speaking midwife. I mean, these are the things that Level of comfort can really increase birth outcomes. Yeah. She does it more justice than I do. But Patricia Lofman, a midwife of 37 years, and she's a member of the board of directors for the American College of Nurse Midwives, said, which I think is perfect for what you're saying, is that in addition to being from the community and understanding not only linguistically and culturally what women need, midwives of color protect women in a system that is hostile to them. And they deserve that because how can they walk into a hospital that they can't trust? And, yeah. and historically so. Yeah. And there have been studies that have shown that that black women get substandard care, Mm -hmm. that they're uh, deemed to be uh, faking pain or or that they have a higher tolerance for pain. So people don't deliver the medication that they need. Like Mm -hmm. if there's uh, some sort of like, I mean, just birthing pain, but also if there's any sort of side issues like with Serena Williams and the blood clots and they 
she could have died because they weren't listening to her. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and that's not. And the fact that it happened to a very well-known famous athlete really is scary about the mm. level of care that people, when nobody knows you, when no one knows who you are. Exactly. Uh, Linda Villarosa from The New York Times actually said education and income offer little protection. In fact, a black woman with an advanced degree is more likely to lose her baby than a white woman was with less than an eighth grade education. There and you that's- go. Um, so one really interesting thing to look at is that uh, currently in, here in the U.S., the states with the lowest levels of midwife inter- integration, which means that midwife integration is like if midwives are present throughout the prenatal labor delivery and afterwards, those states with the lowest levels of that perform poorly in key indicators like uh, rates of premature birth, neonatal mortality, and rates of C-sections. So the best states for integration and these indicators are places like Washington, Oregon, and New Mexico. And the worst are Alabama, Ohio, and Mississippi. And weirdly, Florida didn't do terrible. Well, I did see that some of um, that, like, it's not a, you know, it's not like a straight line. Mm -hmm. So there are, there are times where you cannot have midwife integrate best midwife integration still have decent for u.s standards maternal mortality but by and large they are they're instructive oh and then this other thing uh which is that so a lot of these states like you know i'm looking at you alabama mississippi specifically um that have these poor health outcomes and also have open hostilities to midwives which means like they haven't been integrated into the hospital or uh doctors are don't believe them or whatever they also, not so coincidentally, happen to have the largest uh, black population. And so it leads you to believe if, if we could fast track the ability for women of color in the South specifically to be midwives. And I'm sure there's an interest. You know, there's an interest and there's just like institutional barriers because people are dickheads. But we could see a real reduction in racial disparities in like in like healthy birth outcomes mm-hmm. and this is not everybody but a, but a lot of people who are experts in things what they don't know sometimes scares them and if doctors if there's an institutional like aggression towards midwives and so doctors aren't encountering midwives and learning about the role that they play through medical school then they're going to doubt everything that they do and blame them for things and be openly hostile to them mm-hmm. like we need to work as it needs to be like a coworker scenario instead of like one against the other. Maybe. That's right. That's right. There is room for physicians and midwives to collaborate. It makes mm-hmm. the most sense. The most sense. They do it most other places. Yeah. So. And they're yeah. doing way better than us. Yeah. I looked at the CDC. We are not in a good place on that list. No, we suck. Yeah. We, the end of the thing basically is just that like. Just because this our country has money doesn't mean that we have good outcomes with everything. And the fact that we don't have a really well functioning healthcare system um, that charges people out the ass for something that is not a pathology, it is a natural course of things, leads to the US to me is just like a cartoon male who like blows up you know, blows into his thumb and like expands like a balloon. Yeah. You know, like Mm -hmm. I feel like we're all a lot of the stuff that we say that we have or like the best that we are is all a facade. Yeah. You know, it's trash. So, we just have a really trash. good military. Ugh. That's it. We can just blow shit up. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Blow it up. Blow it all. Oh, but not yeah. the midwives. Let's not blow them. No, up. let's not blow up the midwives. We love them. Yeah. We love you're you. Killing midwives. it. Midwives, you're fucking killing it. We're here for you because you're here for us. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Midwives. Miss Mary to deliver her third child. People like Adam and Maribel Dudley 
newcomers to Doherty County who bring their troubles to this midwife. In the county health department are doctors and nurses who help Miss Mary do the job to which she and thousands of other midwives all over the South have dedicated their lives, the birthing of healthy babies. I'm gonna hold you close to Fun, not-so-fun facts about medieval times and midwives. Yeah. Or birth. And birth, actually. Yeah. Uh, so in the medieval times, apparently, if a baby was not born within about 20 contractions. Blowing, which is like not that many contractions. It's not. BTW. Uh, that they would start employing really weird customs to get the baby moving, which includes opening drawers and cupboards and the lids of chests and tying knots. It was even known for arrows to be shot in the air. Oh, God, I hope that everyone got out of the way, because what comes up must come down. Yeah, really. That's That's what gravity says. According to this book, Malleus Maleficarum, which we've talked about before, it was written in 1484 by the reverends Heinrich Kramer and James Sprenger. Witch midwives Mm -hmm. were the most wicked and dangerous of all of the witches, and they were blamed for causing miscarriages. But if they allowed the child to survive, they would feast on it or offer it to the evil spirits in order to also turn the baby into a witch because they didn't ever want to run out of witches. So that's a thing that happened. <laughs> uh, in the past, some of the fairy folk in particular were feared in the medieval times. It was widely believed that the fairies loved nothing better than having a newborn baby to bring up as their own. So essentially stealing human babies. Wow. And they would place a fairy baby known as a changeling in the crib. Wow. By the way, every time you say the medieval times, it makes me think of like going to medieval times, (laughs) the place with the giant turkey legs. I've been there. Me too. Several times. When I was little, I I haven't been as an adult, but I'd like to go back. Is it fun? I had an ex bring me on a date. Wow. Yeah, it was a surprise date. It was good though. It was fun. Wow. Yeah. And I got a rose and then he got jealous, which is interesting. (laughs) (laughs) It was just like the medieval times. Right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You went back there. So here's another one. So- Related to my first fact, there were actually fewer accusations of midwives being witches between the 17th and 18th centuries because that's when men started becoming midwives. And uh, they start like the words like man midwife or he midwife started coming into the record around 1600. But yeah, they stopped basically accusing midwives of being witches because everybody knows that men can't be witches. Oh, good. Yeah. Yes, they didn't have to get burned at the stake. Okay. And they didn't eat the babies. They're <laughs> men. Thanks for listening to Welcome to My Vagina. It's time for us to slide on out of here. <laughs> you can find us on Instagram at Welcome to My Vagina. On Twitter at Welcome to My Vag. Soon to be on Medium. You can donate to us at Patreon, LiberaPay, PayPal, and uh, Venmo at Welcome to My Vagina. Yeah, become a monthly subscriber. Yeah, yeah. Go to welcomemyvagina.com and become a subscriber to our newsletter as mm-hmm. well. You can email us at welcometomyvagina at gmail.com. We like questions and fan art and jingles and suggestions for future episodes. True. Check out Jesse's awesome videos at on YouTube. Just search for Welcome to My Vagina. Check out Rebecca's awesome writing at franklyrebecca.com. Please also remember that our amazing intro song was done by Wooly Willy. Please check him out on Instagram and pay him money to make you an amazing jingle. Uh, you can find him at Wooly Willy. W-O-O-L-L-Y-W-I-L-L-I-E.
and head on over to morebanana.com to check out all of the awesome projects by our production company. Yeah. And thanks, Kate. Thanks, Kate, for being our amazing, dope-ass fucking producer. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) 